with your head held high, get back your democracy, get back control of your country. Unelected, unaccountable elites, I'm afraid it's time to say you're fired. We're going to take back take control. Back control. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The Prime Minister could be in a position to commence formal negotiations within days. It's official. The Brexit bill has passed through Parliament. Theresa May will shortly trigger Article 50, taking the UK out of the EU. But what do we actually know about what happens next? What will it really mean for our economy? We must leave the European Union and forge a new role for ourselves in the world. We export tea to China, bikes to Holland, boomerangs uh, to Australia, sands to Saudi Arabia, or at least we, have, we did export sands to Saudi Arabia, I think really we still support more sands to Saudi Arabia. Soft Brexit, hard Brexit, scrambled Brexit. The question on everyone's lips is, what kind of Brexit are we going to get? And while there will always be pressure to give a running commentary on the state of the talks, it will not be in our best interest as a country to do that. Whether you voted for it or not, What's the best deal we can hope for? Sometimes I get a bit impatient when I hear people droning and moaning about the state of the world. The government is hurtling towards a, a, yes, a chaotic breakfast that will damage our economy. And I, I feel like saying, come off it, sunshine. My name's Aisha Thomas-Smith, and welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast, where this week I'll be asking our economists all these questions and more. Don't go away. Mark my words, we will make breakfast, breakfast a success. So we're minus one Alice this week, but she'll be back with us next time. So for now, we're stuck with NEF economist Laurie McFarlane. Uh, Laurie, so we're talking hard, soft, scrambled this week. How do you like your eggs? Um, poached, actually. Don't usually have them poached that often, but when I do have them, I, I really enjoy it. That's really scuppered me because uh, I was going to say, Stephen, I think you're a poached man. Are you also a poached man? You know, I will just take the eggs any which way you'll give me them. Oh, yeah. interesting. I love eggs. Great to have you guys here. Raw. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's an exception. That was senior economist Stephen Devlin. Thanks, Stephen. Before we get stuck into the details of Brexit and Article 50, we're looking back at your biggest stories of the last seven days in a segment I like to call What's Going On? Stephen, <laughs> what sparked your interest in last week's headlines? Well, just when you thought Brexit couldn't get any messier, um, we're now contemplating a skexit from the Brexit. Oh, bloody hell. Yeah. In other words, uh, Nicola Sturgeon has announced that uh, they want to hold a second Scottish independence referendum, um, ideally before uh, the outcome of the EU negotiation, which would mean by, uh, I think she said, autumn 2018. She made very clear in their manifesto that there's this very specific situation in which they would call a second referendum, and that specific situation has indeed come about. So logically, um, she has called for another uh, referendum. Um, but the question is kind of, I suppose, how will May react? Uh, looks like she wants to push it back until after uh, we leave the EU. Um, but the Scots, um, you know, would like to have a decision uh, or would rather like to have the option to stay in the EU before leaving. So they want to do it before. So it's all getting very messy um, and things are getting very complicated. And who knows what's going to happen? 
So what do you think will be the, the big issues in the debate around this referendum? The big thing is obviously going to be the EU. Um, they were sort of the last uh, debate around the referendum. A lot of it was about, you know, the only way to stay in the EU was to vote to remain in the UK. So that will be the argument for the nationalists this, side, this time is actually that's no longer the case. Again, last time, you know, be a lot of the same issues around the currency, around the price of oil. Uh, a lot of those things have changed, um, but they're, they're still as important. So it'd be kind of the same issues, but with, uh, you know, quite different circumstances. Okay, so we've got a bit more uncertainty on the horizon. Laurie, can you cheer us up with some good news about my soya latte? Indeed. So uh, so this is news that the Office for National Statistics um, has changed the mix of goods and services that it includes in the uh, shopping basket that it uses to calculate inflation. So when the when it calculates inflation each year it creates this hypothetical basket of goods and services and then calculates how much the price of that has changed and it changes this regularly to kind of match the different the changes in shopping tastes of the uk public but what's interesting about these changes uh, is that they're being attributed to the growing popularity of specific uh hipster goods um so i'm going to give you aisha the chance to guess what goods we think could be now included in the basket that have seen a resurgence in popularity over the past year or two? Well, I do live in East London, so I'm, I'm your girl. Um, how, many, how many can I guess? You can guess as many as you want. I'm going to, I'm okay. going to say four, but you can, you can list okay. off a few. All right, well, I'll try, I'll, try and, I'll try and see your four and perhaps raise you one. Um, okay, so I'm going to go for almond milk because everyone loves almond milk. Um, and I'm going to go for, is it food and drink? Yep. Uh, no, food, drink, anything, products. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. Mustache combs. <laughs> that was, I was going to say something to do with mustaches. Damn it. Um, okay, almond milk. I'm going to go tofu or some kind of meat protein, something like that, because hipsters, not, not big meat fans, hence the huge queues outside the new vegan chicken shop in Hackney. Craft beers, some kind of craft beers. And oh, avocados. Oh, my God. Why didn't I say that first? Avocados. It's not a bad guess, actually. So you're spot on with almond milk. Uh, oh, one of them, uh -huh. so you've got soya milk, rice milk and almond milk have all been added, reflecting the popularity of non-dairy alternatives. So well done on that. You didn't get any others right. But the other ones, cycle helmets have been added, resurgence in popularity, all the hipsters cycling to work. Vinyl records, again, uh, you know, really in vogue at I. the moment. Gin uh, is another one. Lots of sort of nice, fancy gins, popular with the sort of young, hip crowd. Um, so yeah, no, well done. That was a good effort. Yeah, so lots of ginned up cyclists on their on their way to uh... <laughs> comb their mustaches. <laughs> comb their mustaches, exactly. Thanks for swooping in there, Stephen. All right, okay, great, good to know. Thanks, guys. Five, four. The big question of three, this week is what's going to happen to the economy after Article Fifty has one. been triggered. The bill's been passed, and Brexit is go. Thunderbirds are go. Or almost go. We're coming up to Theresa May's self-imposed deadline for starting negotiations with the EU. Pretty soon it'll be time to break the glass and hit the big red Article 50 button. As we launch ourselves out of the European Union, what do we know about where we're heading? Will we be a global Britain sailing the world on Boris Johnson's new royal yacht Britannia? Or are we pulling up the drawbridge on our little island by the sea?
So, Laurie and Stephen. Firstly, there's a lot of jargon floating about to explain this process already. Um, Stephen, could you explain for us exactly what triggering Article 50 means? Well, I actually think it's a bit of an anticlimax because and actually I read Article 50 today uh, for the first time and surprisingly it's actually just this tiny little thing, it's a few sentences long, it's really not as sort of complex as people seem to think it is. It's basically a few sentences in uh, the Treaty of Lisbon um, which basically says if you want to leave the EU you can but you have to let the European Commission know, you have to write to them and say you want to leave and then you have two years to negotiate um, a deal uh, this deal that we've all been talking about. Um, and if that doesn't happen, then you can prolong that two years of negotiation, but only if all the other EU member states agree to that. So that's it, basically. It just means you hand in your notice. We're leaving. One of the funny things uh, about Article 50 is uh, originally written by a Scottish uh, peer called Lord Kerr of Kinlochard. And uh, <laughs> apparently he said at the time that he thought it would only be used in the event of a coup taking place in uh, some European state. So little did he know that it would be used uh, for the UK. Um, so yeah, a bit of trivia there. Oh, thanks. Thanks for that, a re resident Scotsman. He's out, he's out scotting you, Stephen. <laughs> you step up. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so once Theresa May pulls the trigger, there's two years until we actually leave the EU. Um, what's going to be happening in that time? Laurie, what should we be looking out for? So I think um, from what we can tell so far, um, it's, it seems that the government's going to be very keen to try and keep its cars close to its chest throughout the negotiations. It doesn't want to um, sort of have a, an open discussion, debate about its negotiating strategy because it thinks that would undermine uh, its ability to get a good deal. So we haven't really been in a position like this before. Uh, no one really knows exactly how this is going to work. But uh, as Stephen said, they've got two years to hammer out some kind of of deal. Um, at the end of that, though, it's important to point out that uh, any deal needs to be approved by a qualified majority of EU member states. So that's 72% uh, of the remaining 27 EU states need to agree to this. Uh, and it also needs to be um, accepted by the European Parliament as well. Um, so while we've been having this debate in the UK about whether Parliament should have a say or shouldn't have a say, I think people often forget that actually on the other side, um, there is a process there, which means that, you know, the, the EU uh, need to be happy with this, or at least a majority of EU member states and the Parliament need to be happy with this deal um, as well. And do you think that's likely? Could we see uh, the boat being rocked from the other side? Um, it's, it's, it's really difficult to tell. Um, I mean, I think it would probably be unlikely, uh, but I say I wouldn't like to write anything off at this stage. Um, I think just taking a bigger step back, though, I think over the next two years, it's quite clear that this is going to take up uh, a large amount of the government's resources in terms of uh, staff in terms of um, just mental capacity really and I think um, the flip side of that is obviously there's a lot of important issues out there that really do need to be addressed um, that I think the government's just not going to be able to tackle it's not going to be able to focus on much and I think that is a real risk um, that many issues that are really urgently need addressed right now might be overlooked. Yeah, and the the big thing uh, that will be going on in in Parliament is this thing called the Great Repeal Great Repeal Bill. Um, so that's while a lot of the negotiations will be probably behind closed doors, we might not hear a lot about that. We will hear a lot, I think, about the Great Repeal Bill, 
Um, and this is the piece of legislation that they'll be uh, putting through Parliament to basically move all of the stuff um, that's European law into becoming UK law. It's an awful lot of stuff. It's going to take up a huge amount of time, as Laurie was saying, distracting Parliament from probably basically anything else. Um, and it also creates a lot of risks, I think, around, you know, what might get lost in that process, what things could be changed sort of without due democratic process. Um, so it, it's a bit scary, but it does have a fun name because uh, in the Westminster bubble, the Great Repeal Bill, the official slang for it is the gerbil. Ah, okay. It's cute, isn't it? Yeah, I love a bit of banter about what might happen <laughs> to our laws and the economy. Yeah. So lots of people um, expected that there would be a market crash after the Brexit vote, but things don't really seem to have been uh, as drastic um, as has been predicted. So how are the markets going to react when Article 50 is triggered? Um, what, and what do we know about the general outlook for the economy? Well, I think it's quite a bad idea to try to <laughs> predict specifically what's going to happen to the economy. Uh, economists get a lot of stick for getting things wrong a lot of the time, and they do indeed get things wrong. But, you know, not very many people are good at predicting the future. Um, but there are, there are sort of a bunch of different scenarios um, that could uh, occur. One of the big questions is, you know, is the impact of leaving uh, the EU already priced into the markets? In other words, have markets already sort of assumed what's going to happen and are like reflecting that in the prices and, and uh, the dynamics that they're already displaying? Um, I think probably the consensus is that the impact is not priced in already. We're still seeing like quite big fluctuations in sterling now and then. Um, and apart from anything, we don't know what's going to happen, so it's quite difficult for the markets to price in something that, that's so uncertain. So there probably will be uh, some you know, further big changes um, as we go down the line. Um, in terms of the sort of real impact, you know, it, it's quite hard to say. There are a number of different scenarios. I think none of them are particularly good. I think on the sort of less pessimistic side, you know, we could just be looking at a sort of you know, increased costs of trade, um, costs associated with losing migrant workers, you know, less productivity growth that sort of chips away at our prosperity sort of over time. Um, you know, sort of, you know, we're already in, in quite dire straits in some ways, and this would just be sort of gradually making that worse. Um, a more pessimistic scenario would be that something dramatic would happen. There'd be a sudden turn in market sentiment and, and uh, you know, we see... Um, a, a very sudden shift in opinion that could, you know, precipitate a whole range of of uh, a sort of firestorm of events that could be much worse. Um, so there are a few different scenarios. It's hard to say what's most likely, but most of them are not good. So there's been a lot of talk about what deal we'll get from the EU um, in the Article 50 negotiations, or whether we'll even get a deal at all. Um, so Laurie, what kind of options do you think we're looking at? Well, I think um, it's worth just looking back to January time when uh, Theresa May uh, finally set out her objectives for leaving the European Union. And she set out uh, what was a 12-point plan, which gave a bit of an insight as to um, what basically what the government have ruled out and, and what they are actually looking for. So it's maybe just worth galloping through them uh, very quickly, just to remind listeners of what they were. So number one was we'll provide certainty wherever we can. It's a bit vague. Number two, leaving the European Union will mean that our laws will be made in Westminster, Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast. 
Again, not that uh, informative. Number three, a stronger Britain demands that we strengthen the precious union between the four nations of the United Kingdom. As already seen, this is coming under quite a lot of strain uh, through not just the Scottish situation, but also Northern Ireland as well. Number four, we'll deliver a practical solution that allows the maintenance of the Commons travel area with the Republic of Ireland. Number five, Brexit must mean control of the number of people who come into Britain from Europe. So crucially, that means control over the borders, so uh, no single market. Um, we want to guarantee the rights of EU citizens living in Britain. Um, and not only will the government protect the rights of workers set out in European legislation, but will build on them. Uh, they want to build an ambitious free trade agreement with European Union, so again, leaving the single market, so trying to cut some kind of deal. Uh, in reality, I think that's going to be probably the key one um, that is going to be the, uh, the, the, the sort of substance of a lot of the debates. Um, you know, what is going to come under that free trade agreement? What sectors are they looking at? Particularly, of course, um, financial services. Um, the next one that she said was, it's time for Britain to get out into the world and rediscover its role as a great global trading nation. So this means that obviously we're leaving the, the customs union um, because to stay in the customs union would prevent the UK from negotiating its, uh, their own deals. Um, and the next one was, we, we will welcome agreement to continue to collaborate with European partners on science and research initiatives. And the next one, we will continue to work closely with European allies on foreign and defence policy. And the very last one is, we believe in a phased process of implementation. Um, so I think that last one there was kind of a telling sign that the government itself doesn't really think that it's possible to come out with a full agreement over the next two, uh, two years. So in terms of what the next few years looks like, in terms of topics, um, as, this, as we already kind of touched on, I think there will be the key challenges around Scotland, um, potentially Northern Ireland as well. Um, uh, but as well as that, it'll be this issue around the free trade agreement and, and what sectors will it cover. Um, uh, particularly, I think an interesting one is obviously the role of financial services, which uh, the city is no doubt uh, has its eyes on. There's also the question of the sort of exit bill so the, the EU want to charge us something like £60 billion, I think it was, as a sort of, you know, our commitments to paying uh, the pensions of EU employees and, and various commitments like that. Um, and this has caused a lot of consternation among um, uh, Brexiteers in, in the UK. So that could be quite a big uh, point of contention. I mean, it would be a sort of one-off hit, which actually is quite small, you know, in the context of things. But I think 60 billion is still something like 3% of a year's GDP. So, you know, it's not completely small fry. There seems to be some disagreement, even between government ministers, as to whether walking away without a deal with the EU would be a bad thing or not. What do you guys think? I guess they're talking about things like, you know, this exit bill that we're talking about, if they're not happy with that. Um, they could walk away. I think in reality, it's quite unlikely that they would they would choose to walk away from the deal altogether. And I think that's because um, they recognise that no deal actually is quite a bad situation. You know, so we we would be reverting to pretty high tariffs on trade um, between the UK and. Uh, and the rest of the EU, we'd have uncertainty over the status of workers here and, and in the EU. Um, and we just have complete sort of general administrative shutdown. Uh, I mean, that's 
maybe even the biggest thing is just, you know, not knowing which processes apply and which which do. It would just be complete chaos to not have a framework to be working in. So I think no deal is a is a pretty disastrous situation. So I, I think it will be avoided at all costs. Yeah, I think the um, I think the government's adopting a, a fairly risky uh, kind of strategy here because it's basically said it's had this tacit threat where it said if we don't get what we want, uh, then you know we'll sort of become the tax haven of Europe and start sort of slashing taxes and deregulate as if that's some kind of credible threat. Um, you know, it's kind of odd to use the the, the hard fought rights uh, and public services uh, as kind of a bargaining chip uh, in the Europe in the negotiating. Uh, strategy, and that's not in the interest of anyone, particularly uh, in the UK. Um, and obviously, sort of promoting this kind of commercial war with what is the, still the world's largest economic block right on your doorstep, your main trading partner, I think, is a very, very high risk strategy. And it does have the potential uh, to backfire, particularly if it ends up, uh, you know, with no deal. Uh, and I think the only reason that that would arise is if things did go really uh, quite badly. So, Of course, negotiations are a two-way street, as you mentioned, um, and there's definitely potential for it to uh, blow up in anyone's face. There's been talk that a hard Brexit could hurt the EU just as much as the UK. Um, So what sort of deal do you think the EU will be aiming for? Well, I think fundamentally the EU will want uh, a deal that uh, works for the interests of uh, the EU member states, the remaining 27 countries. And clearly the EU doesn't have much of an incentive to give the UK uh, you know, a good deal that might look appealing to other countries. I think the main challenge that the remainder of the EU has is that it's made up of 27 nation states, each with kind of long, proud histories, distinct cultures and issues of national interest at stake. But critically as well, each of them have very different economies and um, they may well be looking for different things out of the negotiations with uh, the UK. So, for example, some countries may be primarily concerned about the rights of their foreign nationals in the UK. So, maybe countries like Poland, for example. Um, others may be more concerned with um, things like agri- agricultural uh, exports. Um, others might be more concerned about the automotive industry, for example, Germany. So, I think the the, the challenge, I think, is to um, to have a sort of a united negotiating position uh, that manages to satisfy the, remain- the remainder of the EU states. Um, uh, in a way that, that, that comes out with a good outcome for, for all countries. All right, so Laurie, you've listed for us uh, Theresa May's priorities for Brexit. What do you think are the areas that we should be focused on safeguarding as we head into these negotiations? Well, I think, uh, well, there's a number of really critical areas. One of the ones that Theresa May did mention in her speech uh, is this issue of protecting on and actually building upon uh, workers' rights that have been enshrined through uh, EU legislation. Um, So I think it's absolutely critical that uh, Theresa May's feet are held to the fire on this because we've been getting some pretty mixed signals, actually, from different parts of the government. So, for example, we had Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, um, saying over in Germany, making this threat about uh, you know, deregulating uh, and sort of the UK becoming this sort of offshore light touch um, uh, kind of floating lazy affair paradise. And clearly that's not compatible with um, maintaining the quite rigorous um, regulations that we have as a result of the EU. Um, so I think that's one of the absolute key areas that we need to be uh, on top of and making sure that uh, we continue with after Brexit. Stephen, what do you reckon? Well, I think one of the really important areas that we need to be thinking about is environmental regulations. So most of our environmental law 
at the moment comes from the EU. So this is one of the things that we're going to be uh, putting through the gerbil um, <laughs> into our own into our own uh, law books. And through that process, there's quite a lot of scope for the government to so just sort of unilaterally change things, uh, weaken things, um, get rid of things altogether. Uh, so I think that's that's um, a, an area where the sheer volume of legislation creates the the, the risk that we're going to sort of miss something. Um, so that's one thing, and I also think we need to be you know defending the rights of EU workers who are here at the moment to stay here and continue their lives and and continue contributing to our economy and society um, and also you know going forward to continue sort of valuing the contribution that migrants make okay thanks guys for letting us know what we should be looking out for Brexit means Brexit means Brexit means Brexit means Brexit means Brexit means Brexit While we're negotiating with the EU, the rest of the world is going to be getting on with their lives and events outside of our control could throw a couple of curveballs into the mix. What's one thing from each of you that we should be looking out for that might put a spanner in the works? Stephen, you're up first. Well, I think one thing that would sort of radically change the dynamics around the negotiations would be if a sort of chain of events precipitated a, a sudden uh, economic recession in the UK. So, you know, that's not necessarily the most likely outcome, but it's definitely a, a possibility um, and a range of things could potentially trigger it. Uh, you know, it's hard to say what, but, you know, if it sort of becomes clear that the negotiations are going badly and the sterling, uh, the value of the sterling takes another hit, uh, if we have sort of companies announcing that they're going to move um, and this all sort of leads to consumer sentiment sort of dropping off a cliff and then we have sort of have a freeze up in the finance system or something like that. You know, you can imagine a sort of chain of events where one thing leads to another and actually uh, the economy just seizes up and uh, unemployment shoots through the roof. And, and at the same time, we still have inflation and um, we could be in quite a nightmare economic scenario. So I think if that happened in the next two years, that would sort of very quickly change, I think, the priorities of the government, uh, you know, probably would make them think twice about, you know, do we really want to be leaving the single market? Do we really want to be putting up trade barriers with the EU? I think it would change popular opinion around, you know, whether Brexit was a good idea. Um, so I think that's one thing to look out for. All right. Laurie, what's your curveball? Well, I think the other uh, big uh potential factor here is what happens in the rest of Europe uh, and in particular I think what happens in the Eurozone. So um, the Eurozone has had a very uh, turbulent few years now um, and certainly the next 12 months in particular look particularly challenging. Um, there are a number of things that are potential risk and bubbling beneath the surface that could manifest themselves over the next 12 months. So uh, for example Greece has been in the news again recently. Um, there's questions around uh, concerns around the country's debt and, and conditions around the bailout agreement. There's also a number of elections this year coming up uh, and concerns around the uh, sort of march of some 
populist anti-euro parties. Um, so I think the, the most, uh, the kind of biggest one there is France, um, which we've got in, I think it's May or June, with Marine Le Pen's National Front, uh, you know, clearly rising in the polls uh, with a clear anti-euro stance. Um, you know, they want to leave the euro. You've got Germany later in the year. There's also talk of Italy having a, a, an early election this year after the Prime Minister Matteo Renzi lost the referendum last year. Um, and again, they've got a party there called the Five Star Movement who are, who are anti the euro. Um, so if, if one of these risks did manifest themselves and, you know, there was uh, a development which meant that one country did sort of suddenly look like it was going to leave the euro, then that could trigger a serious, uh, serious, serious economic crisis which would reverberate not just in Europe or the UK but all around the world. And I think at that point, uh, you know, really all bets are off and it's really, uh, you know, it's really difficult to see what would happen. So I think it's just worth keeping an eye out as to what's happening um, at the rest, across the rest of Europe for the rest of the year and throughout the period of the Article 50 negotiations. Okay, so I was trying to think of a happy note that we could end on, but uh, unfortunately, sometimes uh, things are just a bit tough. That's Brexit! <laughs> but at least all those ginned up hipsters will be that much safer on their bikes. Thanks, Laurie and Stephen, as usual, for breaking down the jargon on Article 50 and the EU. Alice, we miss you. Come back soon, boy smell. So, we'll be back with more of the Weekly Economics podcast at the same time next week. If you've got a question for an economist, you can tweet us. We are at Neff on Twitter. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to show your support, why not leave us a rating or a review? The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield and Hugh Jordan and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. Hello again, Aisha here. If you're the sort of person who listens all the way to the end of podcasts... First of all, get a life. Second of all, you might not know this, but you should. March is International Tripod Month, a time for all of us to get our friends and family who've never listened to a podcast to give one a try. So why not teach a friend or a relative how to download a podcast or send them a link to something they might like? My personal podcast recommendation, in case you've never heard it, is Slate's Trumpcast from the Panoply Network. It's awesome. If you like our show, I think you'll probably like that one too. Why not tweet us your favourites with the hashtag tripod that's t-r-y pod